Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Kat Warren, author of What the Dog Knows, Scent, Science, and the Amazing Ways Dog Perceive the World, a New York Times bestseller. Rebecca Sklut, the New York Times book review, says What the Dog Knows is a fascinating, deeply reported journey into scent, death, forensics, and the amazing things dogs can do with their noses, sniffing out graves, truffles, bedbugs, maybe even cancer. But it's also a moving story of how one woman transformed her troubled dog into a loving companion and an asset to society, all while stumbling on the beauty of life and their searches for death. We start the show with Kat reading from the introduction of the book, where we learn a bit about how Kat and her dog Solo got comfortable working with the dead. I've grown more comfortable working with the dead, with parts of them, really. A few teeth, a vertebra, a piece of carpet that lay underneath a body. One of my German Shepherd's standard training materials is dirt harvested from sites where decomposing bodies rested. Crack open a mason jar filled with that dirt, and all I smell is North Carolina woods, musky darkness with a hint of mildewed alder leaves. Solo smells the departed. Solo is a cadaver dog. I occasionally get a call asking for our services when someone is missing and most likely dead. People have asked me if Solo gets depressed when he finds someone dead. No, Solo's work and his fun begins with someone's ending. Nothing makes him happier than a romp in a swamp looking for someone who's been missing for a while. For him, human death is a big game. To win, all he has to do is smell it, get as close as he can to it, tell me about it, and then get his reward, playing tug-of-war with a rope toy. I never thought death could have an upside. I certainly never expected a dog to point that out to me. Since I started training and working with Solo eight years ago, he's opened a new world to me. Sure, some of it is dark, but gradations of light filter through so much of it that I find it illuminates other spaces in my life. Solo and I have different reasons for doing this work. What appears to motivate him is not just the tug toy reward at the end, although that pleases him greatly but also the work itself, as he sweeps a field like a hyperactive Zamboni on ice, 
tracking will-o'-the-wisps of scent down to their source. What motivates me is watching Solo, a black and red shepherd with a big grin and a huge rudder of a tail. He captures the hidden world, his nose-nose, and translates that arcane knowledge for us humans. As one of the canine unit sergeants said, admiring Solo's clear body language, you can read that dog like a book. An easy book, happily, for a working dog beginner like me. More Dr. Seuss's One Fish, Two Fish than James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. It's a good thing that Solo's approach is Seuss-like, because the larger landscape of the missing and dead sometimes keeps me up at night pondering, poking at small details, trying to understand an unknowable plot. As one famous cadaver dog trainer said, search is the classic mystery. Kat Warren is a professor at North Carolina State University where she teaches science, journalism, editing, and creative nonfiction. Before joining NC State, Kat was a newspaper reporter. She's covered bombers holding a school hostage, a physician who sexually assaulted dozens of patients over decades, and the deep poverty in Connecticut cities. Kat has also been a national education magazine editor and a communication director for a nonprofit justice organization. Her first non-academic book, What the Dog Knows, Scent, Science, and the Amazing Ways Dogs Perceive the World, became a New York Times bestseller and was long listed for the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. Simon & Schuster Books for Young Readers published her adaptation of that book in October 2019, and the paperback comes out in October 2020. She lives with her husband David and their two large German shepherds, Jocko and Rev in Durham, North Carolina. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Kat, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming down on this uh, rainy day from Raleigh. You didn't travel alone. You, 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 you and your husband came, but you brought some other pe- people too. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they are, right? Yeah, well, you yeah. know, I'm yeah. not one of those who calls dogs people, but um, Rev is... Uh, Rev has got a lovely personality, and uh, we left the older shepherd at home with a pet sitter. And um, it's always good to bring a dog and get him used to different places. So he was exploring the railroad tracks down okay, there. Okay, so how many how many dogs do you have now? We've got two. We've, we've got Rev and Jocko. Okay, and, and, and Jocko is another shepherd? Jocko's another shepherd, yes. And I, uh, I brought him uh, to our house to be a cadaver dog, and he he was going to be a law enforcement dog and really fell in love with him and sadly about three years ago he developed epilepsy and so um instead of being a cadaver dog he's actually our house pet <laughs> mm. so rev is going to be the that's the hope yes yeah. All right. and so 
neither of them are featured in your book. We're, the, the book that we're going to be talking about, uh, the dog, is Solo, right? That's exactly right. And Solo has passed on. Solo, right? Solo passed in uh, 2015. Yeah, sorry yes. about that because I know you are probably very close. Yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was a blow. Yeah. Um, so how many do- how many jokes have been made in your presence about how a woman named Cat writes a nice book about dogs? None. I, you no, know, no. Landis, you're the very first person who's met. <laughs> Nobody's ever ever ever, done, ever ever made that connection. And, and well, I, well, I won't do it then. I won't. I won't yeah, bring please. it up. I won't bring you. it up. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. Uh, cadaver dogs was not what I thought I was getting into the cat when I actually saw the title and read the book. I thought I was um, going to find out a little bit more about how maybe the typical house dog thinks and what have you. Uh, right. But uh, once I got into it, I was very intrigued by this idea of cadaver dogs. And maybe we can start out by just talking about what a cadaver dog is. Sure. I, a cadaver dog is a dog who is able to scent and find human remains. And... They're trained for specifically that purpose. So if, you know, we have live find dogs or tracking dogs when, you know, a person is lost and presumed to be still living, you're going to send out a live scent dog. And essentially a cadaver dog is a dead scent dog. Mm -hmm. So they're actually very useful um, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. so many cases. And we saw just actually last week a couple who was lost for a week in California. And um, happily, they were found. Um, They were missing seven nights. Found Um, with the help of a a dog? Found with the help of a live-scent dog. But they were Mm -hmm. ready to send out cadaver dogs on that. They could not believe that the people had been found alive after that long. Well, you talk about this uh, in your book, uh, the training of cadaver dogs. And... um, you, you go into various stages of how that worked, and not only training the dog, but training <laughs> training of you, the handler. There's actually the real work. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk, maybe we'll talk about both here. But but in terms of training a cadaver dog, what, what's the process, and what kind of a re- rewards do you use, and tell us what an alert is. Just give us a little. Sure, sure. sure. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the dog, right? Because you want to reward the dog with something that dog finds rewarding so there are cadaver dogs i know that get treats um once they've found the scent of human remains and told their handler about it but for solo uh he loved to play tug that was Mm. his that was his big game and Mm -hmm. so the idea is simply that you the dog learns to associate the really complex scent of human remains with the game and so when they find it and do what's called an alert or some people call it a final indication that is either sitting or downing, sometimes disaster dogs are um, usually it's a bark because mm-hmm. it may be hard to sit or lie down in the mm-hmm. context of a disaster, then, um, then the dog is rewarded with a game. And how did, how did Solo alert? What was his alert? His alert was a down. So like a down dog kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, it's just a simple lying down. And in a sense, it, it was a great alert for him. So all, all four, he went, all he four, went, he all four paws and ground. belly on the ground, okay. yes. And that meant something was underneath him? Um, that meant something was close. Uh, was was close, exactly. Okay. Now, you know, when you're training a dog to identify scents, you've got to use something that smells like what they're searching for. Exactly. So since they're searching for 
human remains. How, how, right. how do you do that? I mean, so the laws are different from state to state. I mean, you're you're an attorney, so right, you right. you know some of this. So what you use is material that's legally obtained. And in North Carolina, we actually have fairly liberal laws. And so um, every you train the dog on what they're going to be finding. And so that can be everything from teeth and bone um, to very fresh human decomposition. And I was lucky to be able to um, train with law enforcement folks who had access to scenes after they were at a crime scene after it was processed. Um, somebody from Durham Police would help me um, take something that remained there. For instance, you know, if somebody is out in the woods, I know that this can sound a little grim. We, I never found it grim simply because Solo was always so happy working for right. this. But but if the body's out in the woods for a week or so and and um, then removed, the fact is is that the ground underneath that body is going to be saturated with the odor of human decomposition. But, but to teach them that, you take you know the human remains and you hide them among different places. Yeah, and, exactly. And then exactly. and then they have to learn what they're looking for, right, and they right. alert, and then you reward them with yep. the tug game. Yes, okay. exactly. And, you know, at the very beginning, yeah. you're, you're, you're laying up, you know, buckets or boxes or concrete bricks so that the dog goes, no, 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 yes, right, mm -hmm. no, yes, no, 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 so that the dog learns this, this is the smell and everything else mm -hmm. is a blank, right? So how do you... Um, Aspire to be a <laughs> cadaver dog <laughs> handler, and I mean because uh, you tell the story about going to get Solo or, or making arrangements for Solo, and then finding out that Solo was in fact a Solo in the litter, and there's a story behind that too, right? There is. So what does it mean to be a Solo in a litter? So a, a singleton in a litter is a really can be. A really bad sign for the future because um, singleton pups have an enormously hard time learning how to uh, speak dog language and um, learn the kind of body language that they need to learn to get along with other dogs and sometimes even with people and uh, you know uh, we aren't this way. Humans can be born as singletons. Most of mm -hmm. us are, and we don't have but we that get the, issue. But we get the socialization. We might go to preschool or whatever. That's, exa <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And a, a child bites you, and yeah. you yeah. say, ouch, stop yeah. biting me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and you can imagine how critical that is with, with pups. And so the puppy doesn't know that biting is a bad thing necessarily exactly. because no one's told him that exactly. in his peer group. They, yeah. they are absolutely sort of socially inept and that leads to all sorts of problems so your handler from what i was reading in the book wasn't really sure that solo would be a good candidate for what you were thinking about using him for this cadaver well i do you know it was serendipity see see what a happy thing it is to fall into the cadaver dog world right. i literally when we got him i was going to have him as an obedience dog okay. uh, you know he was a he was a dog who was going to be a family companion an obedience dog and he was so impossible. He flunked out of four or five puppy <laughs> classes. We switched vets. You know, a vet would warn me, you know, that, that dog's going to bite somebody. And, you know, I'd quit that vet and find a new vet. Mm -hmm. And so it was really when he was about um, four months old or four and a half months old that I went 
to a trainer I had known and said, Nancy, what do I do? And mm. she was the one who said, why don't you make him a cadaver dog? And you said what? <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> I said, I could put those words together. Yeah, Dead yeah, dog. <laughs> de- yeah, yeah. So, and, and so did you go home and research what that meant, what you were getting yourself into? Yeah. I did. I did. Nancy uh, Hook, who's absolutely wonderful and we're friends to this day, warned me not to do any research or any reading because she was pretty clear that that was always part of my problem, that I over-intellectualized things. And so mm-hmm. she said, don't go read anything. So I immediately but you're went curious. and started. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I immediately went to the vet school and yeah. bought a book called The Cadaver mm-hmm. Dog Handbook and okay. dove in. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's dive in a little bit to, the, to this thing the dog uses to detect uh, the human remains, the, the nose, uh, the, uh, using scent as a, a way to do that. So, Kat, you got a little section you're going to read. You want to set this up for us? Sure. And I think that this is a little bit when I decided to work on the book that part of what I realized is how many myths there were out there, how hard it was to find out what it really is that the dog's nose does. And so this is a little section uh, about how I started to understand how variable the stories were about the, uh, the beauty of the dog's nose. All right, take it away anytime you're ready. So what's the truth about dog's sense of smell? I don't want to keep the reader in suspense. The truth is, we don't know that much about it. As I began researching, I noticed wildly fluctuating figures in both the sentimental and scientific dog literature. The dog's nose was either 10 times or a hundred times, or a thousand times, or tens of thousands of times better than the human nose. Those figures raise doubts. If scientists, or people who play them on YouTube, or your basic dog lover had stuck with one false figure, say, that dogs' noses are a thousand times better than ours, or if they had stated the figures with less certainty and more modesty, I might not have become suspicious. Given the variation, I wondered, How much better are dogs' noses, really? And if they are better, what are they better for exactly? Sniffing dog pee? In tracking rumors, as with tracking most things, it's good to start at their genesis. There's a growing body of scientific evidence suggesting that not only have the nose and its receptors been important to the survival of creatures for at least hundreds of millions of years, They may also have been a key evolutionary force driving the growing intelligence of mammals. In 2011, Texas paleontologists published their analysis of the skulls of pre-mammals living 190 million years ago. Their research shows that one of our pre-mammalian ancestors, the Hadrocodium we, a shrew-like beast with a skull smaller than a paperclip, didn't have the option of rejecting smells. It tremulously ventured forth to sniff for grubs and insects, probably at night, so the diurnal dinosaurs didn't accidentally squash it. Its fur was important, its twitchy ears important, its vision important. But, the paleontologists argued in Science Magazine, it was the critter's olfaction system that was the most impressive thing in that bitty skull. Quote, It differed from even its closest extinct relatives, specifically in its high degree of high-resolution olfaction, 
as it exploited a world of information dominated to an unprecedented degree by odors and scents, unquote. The scientists theorized that these skulls showed the olfactory system played a major role in helping the mammalian brain evolve, apparently to the point that we humans, the most advanced of mammals, could turn our collective nose up at thinking too much about smells. So, Cat, as I saw this and we were picking this read out for today, I was <laughs> thinking about my own dogs, which I walk every morning. It seems like uh, it's, you know, walk, stop, pull, drag, walk, because they're always sniffing at something, right? <laughs> we call them sniff walks. And sniff it's, walks, it's yeah. deeply <laughs> pleasurable for yeah. the dog to not always be pulled away from the thing that it's exploring. So I know. I, I, know. I, I think about that. I think, well, you know, I, I need a remote control or something because i got to keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife reminds me, no, you're, it's the dog's walk. It's not your that's walk. You can, ta- you can take a walk another time. That's but, right. Uh, Get your steps somewhere else. Yeah, because I, I, I mentioned this before the podcast. We've got a dog who's rescued. He's about 14, and he's losing his sight. He's, los- he's lost all his hearing, but his sn- sense of smell is still pretty strong, and that's how he relates to the world. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so how did you notice um, how Solo used his nose to do his work? I mean, could you actually see what was happening? Uh, You can, and that's, um, I sort of mentioned in the introduction about about the unit sergeant who said, you can read that dog like a book. And Mike Baker, whom I actually saw a couple of weeks ago to train with, uh, he's now retired, but he was canine sergeant at Durham Police Department, um, would sometimes use solo to demonstrate to new canine handlers who were coming into the department how you could watch a dog react, a trained dog react, Mm. because they're learning how to train their usually um, uh, drug dogs, right? So so the idea of being able to watch when a dog is coming in descent or hitting the edge of it, and the behavior change is going to be different for every dog, but... Once you're able to recognize it, it's less about the dog lying down or sitting or barking. The fact is, is a handler knows when that dog is getting into odor because it can help you slow down at that point, for instance, mm. and let the dog figure out where it is. Yeah, we've got a search scene you're going to read about in just a moment, but before we do that, I'm just curious, um, what are the qualities of a good handler and you know, what were the challenges for you in trying to, to be that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so patience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is that one uh, of your virtues? No, no. Okay. You know, it was very, it's very interesting. Um, all, all the things that Solo taught me or made me were things that were, to some degree, my weaknesses. And that's being patient, um, waiting and watching and listening instead of leaping in. Um, I remember one day that one of the canine handlers turned to me and she said, Kat, you're always so zen. <laughs> and was like, oh, no, 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 no. I am really tightly wound. I've mm-hmm. just learned to act zen. And but, I, you're, but you're focused, right? So that's what you're, yeah. Yeah, and it really, you know, to this day, I think that um, watching dogs and watching dogs work and shutting your mouth and observing them closely is um, just one of the most pleasurable things that I can think of doing. Mm. 
So what were the challenges for you personally? I mean, did you not, you mentioned some of the things you got to do to think about, be focused, but physical, mental, you're out in the field, you're trudging through areas that people don't normally go perhaps sometimes. Yes. And, uh, yes. So you had the physical side, the mental side. Can you speak to that? Yeah. And I think that part of all of those things are, um, be prepared um, and learning how to be prepared and learning how to put yourself into a mindset when you're starting so that it's actually about the dog and setting things up so the dog can do his, in this case, his very best work. And, mm-hmm. and all of the things that I had to learn and actually am still learning are the kinds of things that you learn when you're a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, yeah, right? Yeah, but they're not, they're not often searching for dead people, right? Well, that's and, true. And so, I, and, and so you had to, it, for your dog to be successful, right. you're going to find something that you wouldn't ordinarily be looking for, right? Yes. And so how was, I mean, did, when you first found that, I know there's the satisfaction of your dog doing the dog's job and you helping the dog do their job. But emotionally? I think that emotionally you prepare yourself ahead of time. Nine out of ten times you actually don't find something when you search. You're actually clearing areas. But you do have to be prepared. Um, And you are concentrating on the dog. So what I found was it was always after the fact, maybe even two days after the fact, that I would end up, um, I don't know, being cross with David and, mm. and realizing... David being your husband. Yeah. David being my husband and realizing, oh, I'm actually having a little, small little post-traumatic thing. Because mm. when you're doing it, it's very true that you're so concentrated on the work that you're not thinking about your emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's incredibly important. Yeah. So um, with all this... Uh, this darkness here. Um, let's write a children's book. <laughs> <laughs> let's just turn this thing into a children's well, book, right? Yeah. Y- you know, <laughs> which um, you did. You I, <laughs> I did, and yeah. <laughs> part of it was also that a couple of kids had read the adult book and really enjoyed it. Sort of uh, uh, kids that were really interested in dogs and reading, yeah, yeah. and kids bring to this. Uh, I have to say an entirely different spirit than we adults do because I think that um, those of us who are adult have sort of an entire history under our belt of not only bad television shows Mm -hmm. but also losing people close to us. And so the whole notion that going out in the woods and finding a body, an adult would immediately put some of that onto that. Why, why, Most, did, why did you want to do a children's book? I mean, you know, it actually it literally had to do with um, a homicide detective's son one day who said that he'd read the book and that he wanted to be like Haley. And Haley was a girl in the book who started training and handling a cadaver dog when she was 11 years old. And mm-hmm. the fact... Out, out of, handling the handlers, as I yeah, recall. Yeah, and yeah. She's, she's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Haley, Haley uh, worked a dog for 
a number of years. She's in um, community college now, uh, but she was an amazing kid. But I loved the fact that this um, detective son could think that emulating a girl was a kind of wonderful thing. Mm. And, then, and there's two, well, there's one big difference, right? When you look at the book covers of the two books, uh, your, your book uh, that came out first for adults you see a close-up. Uh, I assume that's solo on the cover. Yeah. No, that's, that's not just a dog. actually. That's a that's a generic Labrador. Oh, it is. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Well, anyway, anyway, you got half their f- face, and you see them up close. And then, for the children's book, you got a little puppy on the cover. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> what the dog knows. There you go. Scent, science, and amazing ways dogs perceive the world. Not scent, science, and amazing ways dogs find dead people. Right. No, <laughs> and you know, the, it's. It, I will have to say for for both books. I do go into um, other kinds of scent detection dogs and tracking trailing. And for the adult book, I do actually a lot more about um, law enforcement dogs and training. For the kids' book, I kept it more process-oriented. And so the kids' book is... I don't think the adult book is actually that dark. I think a lot of people, it depends, you know, on what their own sensibilities are but for the kids book it was actually pretty simple exercises i gave the adult book to a bunch of good kid readers Mm. and they went through and marked where they were bored or scared what they liked and didn't like and it made it Mm. i have to say super easy because i had already been thinking about these things and the kids led the way but i've had five-year-olds right who hear it or read it and um a five-year-old was actually training. Um, I think you had Bill Boggs on this show before, um, the writer Bill Boggs. But her um, daughter, yeah, her yeah. Da- her daughter B, the day after she yeah. heard about cadaver dogs, was um, training her stuffed dog to be a cadaver dog. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, there you go. Uh, well, listeners, when we come back, we're actually going to talk about uh, searching. We're going to have a read from the. Uh, children's book we're going to come back and do writing life we've also got uh, uh, some interesting controversy that uh, uh, Kat talks about in the book uh, related to how cadaver dogs are used sometimes in court uh, well sometimes not and then we've got a final read so please stay with us hey listeners i hope you're enjoying the episode with cat warren and uh, our analysis of what the dog knows and how dogs communicate with the world well one of the ways that uh, we communicate with the world here on Charlotte Rear's podcast, other than through this podcast feed, is through social media. And uh, I'm happy to say that I've got a good team helping me at Social Grip Marketing. Uh, they, they've taken over our Facebook and our Instagram pages, and uh, they're a whole lot better than when uh, Landis Wade was running that part of the show. You can find us there at uh, Charlotte Reader's podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and you're going to see that the uh, content is so much better than uh, when I was doing it. On Twitter, you can find us at Charlotte Reader. Uh, I'm handling some tweets there and trying to get some information out. And LinkedIn is just Landis Wade. But on all these sites, we're putting up information about the authors, putting up their images, putting up information about what they're going to be reading, even do some audiograms in our seasons that have the authors reading 30 to 45 seconds of information. We try to engage uh, on that uh, Network And, yeah, I know social media is not for everyone, but, uh, you know, check it out every now and then. It'll give you an idea as to sort of what's coming and uh, what we're doing and provide link-throughs to different opportunities to engage with the show and engage with our authors and uh, find out about some great, great books and some great reads. So 
I think now probably we ought to get back to find out uh, more about what the dog knows since uh, social media is going to take care of itself and be just fine without us worrying about it. So thanks for listening. Uh, let's get back to the show. Hey, listeners, I'm back with uh, Kat Warren, author of uh, What the Dog Knows, Scent, Science, and the Amazing Ways Dog Perceive the World, both uh, an adult book and uh, the Young Reader's Edition. We're now uh, talking about the Young Reader's Edition. And, Kat, you've got a uh, scene here you're going to read uh, that, that relates to a search. Can you set this up for us a little bit? Yes. Um, so Solo and I trained for probably a year and a half. I was new to it, um, but then I got him certified, which means that he was uh, qualified past the test so that we could go out and do actual searches. So he and I had been out on a couple of searches. We hadn't found anybody. But this is a chapter about a search in Durham, and it's uh, I was still pretty new, and I'm just going to pick up where we've arrived at the edge of the swamp and woods that where you've been asked to search and take it from there. All right. I ran down a final checklist in my head. Water, water bowl, bug spray, an extra lead, two rope toys. Thank goodness I hadn't forgotten those as I dashed out of the house. They were as essential as water. With the permission of the commanding officer a good distance away from the search, I had already planted a mason jar with dirt that had decomposition fluid in it. As sure as everybody seemed, we might not find anyone on this search, and Solo still needed to be rewarded. My list checking calmed me. Solo's distractions didn't calm him. He smelled dog pee on the jungle jib and dog pee on the Bermuda grass. His tail curled defensively. As we walked toward the woods, children from the apartments, who stood back at first to watch from a distance, now surged around us. They leaped back and screamed in delighted fear as Solo swung his huge head in their direction. He wrinkled his brow. They weren't dogs. They were just small people. He relaxed his tail to wag, slow and low, Around children, he dialed back both his drive and his noisiness. Don't worry, he's sweet, I told them. He wasn't always sweet with me, but he was with others. He's big, huh? He won't hurt you. He loves kids. But Solo had a job to do, so we kept moving the whole time. The two investigators, the dog, and I ducked under the yellow crime tape climbed through a jagged hole in a chain-link fence and entered the shade of the mimosas and elderberries in trees of heaven that overwhelmed the edges of these woods. We straightened up on the other side, and I took one of the rope tug toys out of the training bag and then tucked it into my pocket. Solo yowled and spun, kneecapping me with his big shoulder. I winced and unhooked his lead. I reminded myself once again that searches were not the time for etiquette lessons. I didn't want Solo to sit or heal or watch me with adoration. I wanted him to find the suspect, who was now surely a victim. Freed and far more obedient off-lead than on, Solo stood frozen, waiting. His eyes fixed forward, then sliced back to my pocket that held the tug toy, 
then shifted down the hill again. The slope was littered with empty liquor bottles, disposable diapers, a shattered big wheel, an ancient washing machine. He didn't need to hear the command, but the words focused and centered me, reminding me that we'd rehearsed this game. The least I could do was get it started. Solo? Go find your fish. He did a final brief dance around me, striking the pocket where I'd stashed the toy with his open muzzle. Not a bite. It hurt, though. Then he barked sharply and disappeared into the dense undergrowth. So, Kat, this, um, this command that you give, Solo, go find your fish, was that something that you came up with? Uh, it was, I mean, is that a common? <laughs> you know, I, uh, uh, the favorite uh, command I know is from a, uh, a person who's in Florida, and her command is, find Hoffa. After after Jimmy Hoffa, Um, it doesn't matter. You could tell the dog um, uh, China teacup, right? Right. And it's whatever the dog relates to that. He probably didn't even need a command. Why did you choose fish? Nancy Nancy decided that it would be a nice, um, swishy sounding, um, not too generic command, and Mm -hmm. it sounded good. Had alliteration, find the fish. There's so many different commands. So when he when he disappears into the dense undergrowth, what do you, the handler, do? I follow him into the dense undergrowth. Into the dense undergrowth. Yes, okay. the dog. Yeah. The dog is really leading the search, and I think that the thing that I learned most in working with scent detection dogs is the degree to which you teach them and they learn and you learn independence, right? Mm. Because it's their nose. They're in a sense the expert. You're there Mm -hmm. to make sure that they go generally where the law enforcement people want you to search. Mm. But you also want the dog to be um, the leader. Yeah. So what happened on that particular search? So, you know, we found somebody. Mm, okay. <laughs> that was. Um, well, you did. I mean, Solo did his job, right? He and, did. And you did your job helping him do his job. And I think you talked in the book about, uh, you know, if, if there's a sense that someone has died, um, or if you know for sure that you're searching for uh, maybe ancient bones of some kind, but more so if you if you are searching for someone that you're trying to find for the family or whatever, I think you're more worried about missing something, right? I mean, you talked about three things you worry about. That's exactly <laughs> and that's right. And that's one of them, right? That's yeah. exactly right. So yeah. I think th- this issue of you go out, you don't necessarily expect to find somebody. Mm-hmm. You hope you do. Um, it's You hope you do if they're there to be found if they're there to be found but the true nightmare and i've seen it and i've heard it and everybody agrees with this is that you go out and for whatever reason you end up missing the person Mm. or and when you miss them you've defined a search grid that they say has already been searched and so then you don't right go back right and and there are a number of cases where where people aren't found for a long time and then after the fact the realization is is that somebody searched that area and 
and skipped over them. And there can be a lot of reasons for that. But mm. it is, that is the nightmare. I used to go back, um, you know, because sometimes people aren't found for a couple of years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And But I would follow people's cases and I would always go back and study my own maps and mm -hmm. where the person was finally located to make sure that it wasn't in my search grid. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Jimmy Hoffa a minute ago, which made me think of the court system. And you've got some information in your book about the court system because dogs have been used over time to identify suspects um, who have been guilty of crimes. Um, they've been used to chase people who've escaped from prisons and bloodhounds and what have you. Um, but there was a, I was intrigued to find out that, that dogs, having been a lawyer, I never had a dog testify in court before, but having dogs as actually witnesses who appear, maybe not themselves on the stand, but through their handlers who offer testimony right. as expert witnesses as to what their dog saw and what they alerted to and so forth. And that's not always been handled appropriately, right? No, and it's, you know, it's not just cadaver dogs. I mean, we can talk about narcotics detection dogs. We can talk about um, uh, a dog identifying a murder suspect. Right. Um, and, and the truth is, is that people use dogs as extensions mm -hmm. of themselves. And so inevitably, there can be sort of dishonesty because there's dishonesty in humans. And so the whole area of allowing one piece of testimony to mm -hmm. be um, to be presumptive in a court case is, is just such a problem. I was lucky that I never actually had a case that ended up going to court because the person was actually found or but it but I had a couple of cases that could have gone to court in what context I mean if you're finding a a, a dead body then what's right so what, you, what if, would you be testifying about but so. but you're not always finding a dead body so for uh, instance okay. um, and this is not a case that I wrote about but you know a dog can alert in the trunk of a car uh, right okay. saying there's something there, there. right human remains so you got probable cause so, and exactly yeah. so yeah. you you indeed have to know all the literature around mm -hmm. probable cause and you know even i have to say search warrant right stuff right do do you have the right to go into somebody's backyard if the dog runs into that backyard and alerts is is that um, is that allowable in court? So mm. um, the entire area, I have to say, I mean, I was a newspaper reporter and I covered um, cops and courts and crime. Mm -hmm. And it's an enormously important part of the job for the handler to know what the applicable law is. Mm. So, Kat, one of the examples of um, one of these handlers who maybe perhaps his ego was bigger uh, than, than the truth uh, was a fellow named Keith Pickett, and you wrote about him in your book. You want to say anything else about this read? Yes. I, I mean, I think that it's an important chapter in the book because I think that people, all of us, can sometimes think that dogs are magic, right, and infallible. And as a result, 
um, great harm can be done in a court system. So innocent people can end up in jail um, based entirely on a handler's testimony. And so in one of my chapters, I really talk quite seriously about some of the worst-case scenarios. And Keith Pikett was one of those. He had a couple bloodhounds. He was in Texas. Um, the Innocence Texas Innocence Project, um, I think, ultimately there were dozens of cases where he had mm. um, uh, been involved and used his bloodhounds in a way that basically said these dogs could not make a mistake, and that was clearly evident that they were making mistakes. So I'll pick it up with right. Keith Pikett. Keith Pikett, a now retired Fort Bend County, Texas sheriff's deputy, is a more recent, still living legend. His claims about his bloodhound's scenting abilities resulted in what Texas Innocence Project told the New York Times amounts to 15 to 20 people in prison, quote, based on virtually nothing but Pikett's testimony, unquote. Pikett had been involved in helping indict more than a thousand suspects nationwide. His specialty was the scent lineup. A scent lineup starts with collecting scent from a crime scene, then collecting scent from a suspect. The dog's job is to, quote, match the scent from the crime scene with the scent of the suspect. For scent matching to be valid, it needs to be done under pristine circumstances, double-blind with careful preservation methods. In the Netherlands, where the courts accept scent lineup, but only as corroborating evidence, they use more than one dog, and the work is done in a sterile room without handlers present. In other words, no cross-contamination and no possibility of clever Hans. That's not the way Keith Pikett did it in Texas. And then you go on to describe in the chapter how police watched videos of how Pikett set up his uh, lineups, and that showed that it wasn't following the pristine measures that you described. <laughs> and, and there was even one person who was accused of killing three people based greatly on Pikett's dog evidence, and, and it turned out he was partially blind, handicapped with diabetes and bone spurs, and physically incapable of committing the murders. And yet, based on that testimony, he was convicted. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it, there were so many tragic cases uh, with Pikett's um, work. And I actually watched the videos myself because some of them were still available. And it was, it was an embarrassment. So that's an example of someone giving everyone else a bad reputation <laughs> when it comes to these things. Pretty and, much. But y'all worked hard, both with the police that you worked with and you individually, in training the dogs to get it right. I mean, that's part of what your, right. your goal was through that, this. Yes. All right, so let's shift for a second to a writing life segment, if we could. Yeah. Sure. So you've got uh, two different kinds of books here. you got an adult book and you got a children's book, but you're dealing with the same topic. So did you, I mean, what were you thinking when you went from <laughs> having, having written the adult book? Because you're, you, so you're doing some serious topics here. Uh, you're dealing with, you know, death and hunts for death and, but then, on the other hand, you're dealing with dogs. So did you have to change the language? Were you deciding what to leave in, what to leave out? How would you go about that? So I think several things happened. Um, first of all, I think that this is for 8- to 12-year-old kids. And for that age of kids, there's 
a lot that they do understand. Um, you're not going to go into deeply morbid detail about things, but I didn't that much in the adult book, probably a little more than I did in the kids' book. I think that as much as anything, what I tried to do was create a stricter through line for the kids' book. They had I took characters out of the kids' book. Um, I took some of the geekier science, because I am a bit of a science geek, mm -hmm. and put some of that science in sidebars with illustrations. I worked with a marvelous illustrator. And in a way, the idea was to make it a little more of an adventure book. Yeah, you, made, you had more pictures too, right? I did lots of pictures. <laughs> 132, actually. Yeah, made, yes. yeah, I, thought, I thought, I should have read the children's book. And then yeah. I could have, you know. Just well, <laughs> there are adults who say that they prefer the children's book, Is and that, I, I get yeah. that. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's nice. Um, so when you're talking about what to leave in and what to leave out, you did tell me um, in discussions with your publisher that uh, they wanted you to take out the death of a dog, right, from the children's right. book. Yes, yeah. I had actually written also, and I'd written it out of a sense of uh, it's another thing that kids will experience, right, right? Yeah. in their childhood. And, you know, we have as Old Yeller, I think we yeah, talked yeah, about talk Old Yeller. We, we have these children's classics. If you think about the children's classics, like fairy tales mm -hmm. can be marvelously Very, grim, right? right? Yeah. Uh so I did. I, I took out that chapter on, on losing dogs. And uh, there were also, <laughs> there was also the point where I actually had to hard, hardly argue to um, leave in the word jackass because mm. the young reader's version was not supposed to have foul language. Right. And I have to say that in the adult book, some of the handlers use foul language, mm -hmm. and I reproduced that. I didn't, I didn't quite. I mean, I don't know if you argue with your publisher about this, but your the idea of taking out the death of a dog, which children are going to experience, but leaving in all this, <laughs> all, all these chapters and words and stories about hunting for dead people. I mean, it didn't it didn't make much sense to me. Yeah. You know, I I I think <laughs> that part of it is that um, even for the adult book, um, I, I assured the editor that no dog dogs would die mm -hmm. and I I remember it, it's sort of like nobody wants the last chapter right. yeah. of the book to have the dog's death but you did have one beta reader one 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 young uh, reader who gave you some pretty pointed advice because you in the adult book said that uh, you, you talked about solo and you talked there's Han Solo in Star Wars and then you just sort of Flippantly commented in the adult book that you're not much of a fan of Star Wars. Yeah, so I should. Yeah. So the, and, and so what happened when the when the kid read that? So so when Lincoln read that section, and he was just one of the most astute readers. I mean, he marked up the whole book. He said, "I want you to put more Belgian Malinois, which is a kind of sort of pointy-eared." rat-tailed shepherd. I want more Malinois in this book because he loved Malinois, but there's mm -hmm. this point where I had said I wasn't that fond of Star Wars, although I did like Harrison Ford. And he put in block capital letters, if you want kids to like this book, <laughs> you better not say that. <laughs> so, and, and so did you not say that? I, I <laughs> um, let's see, I elided it a little yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. You know. Okay, good. Well, so you got some more readers that way. Uh, well, and you got bigger font in the book too, which is nice. Um, 
maybe that should be an adult thing too. You know, we get bigger font. It should. And, it know. should. Um, now you teach writing as part of your what you do. Um, what do you tell students? Well, first of all, what kind of writing classes do you teach? So I teach a couple different writing classes. I teach um, creative nonfiction. Uh, mm-hmm. which sounds a little oxymoronic, yeah. but that's exactly yeah. what we call it is yeah. uh, creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And then I write a have a class that's a graduate class called Science Writing for the Media mm-hmm. and then editing classes. And, you know, um, a lot of the kids, this semester I'm teaching a, a upper division creative nonfiction class, and many of the students are in the creative writing program and have experienced writing fiction and come in with some trepidation into a class that's about nonfiction. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a little scary to them. Um, And my job is actually to convince them that it's about storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. That we're just using different kind of approach to ancient storytelling methods and that that's their job and then on top of it it also has to be true and that that interestingly can be a real challenge and since I did conferences all day Monday and Wednesday I was thinking a lot about this because I meet with each student for 45 minutes but very often a way into these kinds of stories is some kind of first-person narrative that quickly expands into something more. Mm -hmm. And I think that they manage to understand that way, right? So when you're dealing with students in your writing programs, do you find that they are gravitating more toward fiction writing or... Nonfiction writing. So they, they are gravitating towards fiction writing, and I would say that um, fantasy and science fiction mm-hmm. and young adult is sort of by far the favored genres. Have you, have you told them yet uh, how much easier it might be to make a little money if they do nonfiction versus fiction? Yeah, well. <laughs> You know, it's so if they, hard. If they wanted to make money writing, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had a, I yeah. had a, I had not a that you can make much money writing, but you know, no, it's true. But yeah. as between the two, you know, the odds of getting published probably are better in the nonfiction yeah. world. And you know, they are, they are. But you know, indeed, uh, the world of journalism is a little grim right now, sure. as yeah. you can probably right. look around you and see. And so it, it's interesting because what we're talking about is is doing something that you love mm-hmm. that might never garner a living wage for you. Hmm. So did you grow up with books in the house? Were you around books all, all the time? Or? We, we, my, my father hmm. didn't allow a television set okay. in our house until I think I was 14 or 15. Hmm. Um, we got a television, we borrowed a television set for the Watergate hearings. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this dates me. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, okay, so, so all you can watch on TV is the Watergate that's hearings. That's exactly yeah. right. So, yeah. I mean, we ch- I checked out seven books a week from the library. That was the maximum mm-hmm. allowed. Mm-hmm. We went to the library once a week. What, what did you gravitate to as a young oh, I, oh, I I read every single animal book okay. on the shelf. And All then right. I shifted over. I think that my mother at some point was getting a little worried because I was what was then called a tomboy. Mm-hmm. And dogs and horses and wild things mm-hmm. 
grizzly bears were, you know, my preferred heroes in books and, yeah. and not Anne of Green Gables, right? right, right. <laughs> or Clara Barton Nurse. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at some point I did, I, I did shift over, uh, but mostly because I'd read out the animal books. Now, you, you teach at a uh, big university. Do you actually teach the courses or do you have uh, like a graduate assistant who helps you? Or how does that work? No, I teach the courses. And, we, you know, okay. we have small writing classes. Okay. I have a graduate student who's just sitting in on okay. my courses. Right. Well, that's not, it's great that you teach the courses because it didn't always happen that way. And, no. And I guess my next question is how do you balance that with writing? Because this is a pretty thick book here and a lot of research went into this yeah a lot of research went in i'll admit a couple of things first of all i'm really lucky and privileged to be a tenured professor number one number two i actually bought a little of my time free so i taught a couple fewer courses to finish that book and right now i'm lucky to be on phased retirement so um i'm teaching half time that's nice so all right, well, what's next? Are you going to write about uh, some more dogs? Are you going to write about uh, your next uh, passion? Or are you just, I mean. So it's interesting that you mentioned fiction and fiction not really selling. So that's naturally where I've gravitated. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually working on a project that will, I hope, be a mystery trilogy. Oh, nice, yeah. All right, Kat, we've got time for just uh, a final read here. You know, dogs, um, the the. Some call them people, some call them, you know, dogs, but they are close family members nonetheless, and they get old and they die and they move on. Um, anything you'll say about little read you're going to do here? So th- this is just uh, towards the end of the book, and it really sort of set up, sets up that moment when I realized that Solo is getting older. We, I had worked a number of years with him, and I'll just pick up. And who's Megan in the book? And Megan in the book was that I, David and I adopted uh, my father's year-old Irish setter, Megan, um, when he fell in love with a lovely woman who was not a huge fan of large, boisterous uh, Irish setters. And um, mm. and so David and I offered to adopt her. And uh, I, I promised David to just give her one year, and if he decided that she would go after that year that we would find a home for her. So sounds, we sounds, didn't. Sounds related to a story in our family. I had a great uncle who didn't stay married long. He had, he always had dogs, six or seven. Apparently his first wife and only wife gave him an ultimatum. It was the dogs or her, and, and he soon became a, a divorced. Yes, they said, there <laughs> you said, go. He said, okay, you give me that option, I'll, I'll take it. You know. uh, all right, so uh, anytime you're ready. Solo wasn't the only aging beast in our house. The rest of us were getting sore and creaky. Silver crept across the top of our heads, although Solo's head remained rich red and black. Only his muzzle had grizzled. Megan's entire head was a mixture of white and faded mahogany, her eyes increasingly bleary, as though a fog had descended and was slowly encasing her. She was 13, ancient in setter years. Although she was no longer as strikingly beautiful as in her youth, we still used her nickname, Scarlet O'Setter, since she remained as self-centered and spoiled as ever. She continued to demand royalties and obey sants from us. 
If Solo lay sacked out on a soft dog bed, she would totter over and collapse on top of him, looking reproachful if he startled awake and leaped away from their colliding bones. Her days of tearing my rotator cuff by running out the end of her flexi-lead were gone. Seeing a squirrel would send her into an off-kilter wobble, like a toddler whose attention is diverted. Sometimes she just fell over. My orthodoxies about dogs and old age softened and shifted with Megan's increasing weakness. We popped mild opiates into her mouth to keep her, and us, happy. We helped her up and down the stairs each night and morning with an elaborate harness that had a rubber handle on top, something I had sworn we wouldn't resort to. We bought her a Martha Stewart quilted dog jacket to keep her warm. She occasionally deigned to gaze on me with approval when I tucked a blanket over her at night. We had Dad's cherry rocker, his good binoculars, and Megan. Nancy Hook was right. I needed to start another cadaver dog. And so this was because Solo was older and had been retired from... He hadn't, he hadn't been retired quite at that moment. Close. But, yeah, mm-hmm. there's the thing where you want some overlap mm-hmm. because you don't want to be in a position where you're working a dog past when they can be really effective, right? Mm-hmm. Because of whether pain or you actually get little micro-injuries in the nose and, mm-hmm. and the sense of smell does go. Um, and you don't want to force that dog or force law enforcement mm-hmm. into saying, yeah, you right. know, I'm not sure that dog can do the work, right? Mm-hmm. So he needed retiring. Well, this is probably one of the more interesting projects you've picked up in your, your time period, being a cadaver dog handler, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of fell into it, and it's, it's hard to then fall out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating journey into a world I didn't know really anything about until I read your book and uh, enjoyed talking with you today about it. I want to listeners, you can find information in the show notes uh, about Kat and, and some photos too. Kat, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.